Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. I'm Dan Griswold. I'm the director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. The subject of today's book forum is The Service Revolution in South Asia. It happens to be the title of a new book edited by Ajaz Ghani of the World Bank and published by Oxford University Press. This is an important book about a phenomenon that is changing the lives of millions of people for the better every day around the world. But it is also poorly understood or downright ignored by commentators and economic officials. And I know firsthand from my experience here at Cato researching and writing about U.S. trade policy that services are the Rodney Dangerfield of uh, development and economics. They don't get any respect uh, from uh, commentators and writers. Uh, service jobs tend to be dismissed as menial and low-paying and dead-end. Uh, you see it here in Washington with this obsession with uh, spurring the manufacturing sector, uh, this latest uh, campaign in Congress to make it in America. Uh, an economic plan, which is really a, uh, an election year plan. And we see it internationally in the Doha round, <clears throat> which is foundering on uh, conflicts over agricultural uh, trade barriers. And then if they get beyond agricultural, they'll talk about manufacturing tariffs. And almost as an afterthought, uh, they talk about liberalizing services trade even though, as uh, the authors of this volume point out, 70% of the world's gross product, economic product, is services. Uh, and that share is growing as the world uh, moves forward economically. Uh, in fact, industrialization is very much an obsession with development uh, experts as well. And that's where this book, I think, makes a very important contribution and which is why uh, we're having this event today. This book challenges what the editor calls the iron law of development, which says that industrialization is the only path for developing countries to uh, grow and become prosperous. <clears throat> the book points out that services account for 70% of the world's output, uh, and, that, and that output is becoming more tradable. Uh, in international markets. Because of technology, telecommunications, more liberal trade policies, lower trade barriers, uh, both unilateral and through negotiations. <clears throat> and the editor summarizes uh, the book with, with this statement. The core argument in this volume is that as the number of goods and services produced and traded across the world expand with globalization, the possibilities for all countries to develop based on their comparative advantage expands. And flowing from that is the fact that services can just as easily serve as the basis for that advantage than manufacturing or agriculture. I think that's a very key insight. If the authors in this volume are correct, a powerful engine is available for raising growth rates and reducing poverty in South Asia and across uh, emerging markets. Well, here today to talk about this important new book is its editor and contributor, 
Ajaz Ghani. Uh, and here to offer comments is our own, uh, Cato's own Swami Iyer. I'll go ahead and introduce them both and then uh, get out of the way. Uh, Ajaz Ghani is currently economic advisor for the South Asia region at the World Bank. He has taught economics at Oxford University in Britain and Delhi University in India. He has worked on Africa, East Asia, and South Asia, and has a strong interest in globalization, growth, employment, and poverty. He's uh, studied economics at Delhi University, the Jawaharlal Nehru University, and Oxford University. Commenting on the book will be uh, Swami Nathan Iyer, a research fellow here at the Cato Institute with a special focus on Asia and India. He is the author of the 2009 Cato study, which I highly recommend, uh, titled Socialism Kills, the Human Cost of Delayed Economic Reform in India. He's a prolific columnist and TV commentator in India, well known for a popular weekly column titled Swaminomics. I wish they'd name a whole field of economics after me. <clears throat> and that appears in the Times of India. He's been the editor of India's two biggest financial dailies, the Economic Times and Financial Express, and he was also the India correspondent for The Economist magazine uh, for two decades. He has frequently been a consultant to the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, and he holds a master's degree in economics from Oxford University. Uh, please join me in welcoming our featured speaker, Ajaz Ghani. Thank you very much. I want to apologize for being a bit late. I got caught in traffic. I thought at World Bank it's just next door I can come in, but goods don't move so fast sometimes. Um, Daniel has actually beautifully summarized the uh, key sentiments and themes of the book, so it's a difficult, difficult act for me to follow. Um, I would like to start by acknowledging the team that prepared the Services Revolution Report, and in particular, Homi Karas. I'm also very grateful to the Cato Institute for hosting this book, book forum. I can see a few friends here, but a large number of experts, so I'll have a lot to learn from you. You would have heard about the IT success of Bangalore in India but may not have heard about Hyderabad, the capital of the Indian state, Andhra Pradesh. The story of Hyderabad is truly inspiring. Andhra Pradesh was no different than many sub-Saharan African economies some time back. But within two decades, Andhra Pradesh has been catapulted straight from a poor and a largely agricultural economy into a major service center. It has been transformed from a lagging state into a leading region. Fueled by an increase in service exports of 45 times between 1998 and 2008, the number of information technology companies in Hyderabad increased eight times and employment increased 20 times. I'm not from Hyderabad. <laughs> I'm from Bihar, which is the poorest uh, state in India. The fact that I'm here at the Cato Institute 
would suggest that the service revolution has mushroomed in other parts of India too and is mushrooming in other South Asian countries. Indeed, the service revolution has enabled India to grow almost as fast as China. China and India are both racing ahead economically. But the manner in which they are growing is dramatically different. Whereas China is a formidable exporter of manufactured goods, India has acquired a global reputation for exporting services. The two fastest growing economies in the world have followed very different growth paths. The relative size of the service sector in India for its stage of development is much bigger than in India, than in China. Despite being a low-income region, India and other South Asian countries have adopted the growth patterns of the middle and high-income countries. Their growth patterns more closely resemble those of Ireland and Israel than that of China, South Korea, and Japan. The contrasting ways in which China and India are developing and the particular difficulties each still faces have prompted heated debates about whether one country has a better approach to economic development and will eventually emerge as the leader. The best way to compare China and India is to open the machine and examine their industries, productivity and competitiveness. This is what we have tried to do in the report on the service revolution. China trumps India when it comes to industries. But when it comes to services, India comes out ahead, be it in software, biotechnology, creative industries such as advertisement, or simple call centers. India has leapfrogged over the manufacturing sector, going straight from agriculture into services. The differences in the growth patterns of China and India raise big questions for policymakers and development economists. Can service be as dynamic as manufacturing? Can latecomers to development take advantage of the increasing globalization of the service sector? Can service be a driver of sustained growth, job creation, and poverty reduction? Will the bottom billion benefit from service revolution? The growth experience of India in the 21st century is remarkable because it contradicts a seemingly iron law of development that has held true for almost 200 years since the start of the Industrial Revolution. This law, which is now conventional wisdom, says that industrialization is the only route to rapid economic development. It goes further to say that as a result of globalization, the pace of development can be explosive. But the potential for explosive growth has until now been distinctive only to manufacturing. This is no longer the case. India's growth pattern suggests that service is as dynamic as manufacturing. This can fundamentally change the pattern of development for many developing countries and Africa. Then why has the role of service 
relative to manufacturing been ignored for so long. Conventional wisdom has considered services to be a stagnant sector without dynamic externalities attributed to manufacturing. That was one reason why services were never thought of as a potential leading sector for development. Services had characteristics that differed significantly from goods. Goods, as you know, are physical things that can be put in a box and traded. They can be made anywhere, at any time, and at any scale. More and more different goods are produced each year as firms develop new products and as production processes are broken down into individual parts and components. With a growing number of goods, productivity can rise because of specialization, a finer division of labor, and scale, falling unit costs of production. Trade in goods allow even small countries to find a niche in global markets where they can be competitive. China is an example of a country which has developed rapidly on the basis of this simple proposition. Services, on the other hand, are difficult to place in a box because they are bound by time and proximity. For example, eating in a restaurant, getting a haircut, having a medical checkup, or seeking a loan from a bank all require face-to-face -face transactions. This makes it difficult to trade services. They are produced where and when demand is present. The service revolution has changed all of this. Services now behave like goods, and this has been made possible by the three T's, technology, transportability, and tradability. The first T, technology, especially information and communication technology, has given services a physical presence. They can be produced and stored as series of zeros and ones in digital format. Banking and loan transactions can now be conducted online. A medical checkup may still require meeting with a doctor, but the results of an x-ray may be reviewed by a radiologist in a different country. The details of the examination may be transcribed by a person working in a different time zone, and medical records may be stored and updated on a remote server. The second T, transportability. Thanks to telephone lines and internet, can transport services easily over long distances with little or no degradation in quality. Services are no longer restricted by time and space. One indicator of the cost of transporting services is the average cost of an international telephone call to the United States. For most developing countries, this has fallen by 80% or more over the last decade, a decline in cost which is much more rapid than the fall in transport costs for goods. Even more significant is the decline in the cost and increased access of broadband internet. An example of the declining cost of telephone call is the regular weekly telephone call that I receive my, from my mother every week. My mother lives in Bihar. Sometimes I can hear her long conversations because she has a mobile and press my number unintentionally. 
Perhaps as important as cost is the speed, clarity, and reliability with which information can now be transported. The third T, tradability, refers to the fact that many modern services which are transported digitally face few government barriers when they are moved from Bangalore to San Francisco. There are no borders, customs, or tariffs on the international exchange of most modern services. These three Ts have unleashed a service revolution. We have witnessed the tip of the iceberg, to quote Blinder. The internet age will continue to transform more services into modern, digital, impersonal services. The range of business processes that can be globalized and digitized is constantly expanding. Processing insurance claims, desktop publishing, the remote management and maintenance of IT networks, compiling audits, completing tax returns, transcribing methods, medical records, financial research and analysis. The list of possible activities is almost endless. Services that can be digitized have many features that are in common with manufacturing. Like manufacturing, they benefit from technological advances that generate productivity growth year after year. They exhibit similar tendencies for scale and agglomeration and specialization. Service producers can bring down unit costs by expanding operation. They benefit from being in close proximity to one another as that creates a pool of well-trained workers. But there are also differences. Services are more skill intensive than manufacturing and agriculture. Education matters more for services. Services require excellence in telecommunications, whereas traded goods, may, goods move by ship, air, and road, globally traded services are delivered using telephone or the internet. This service revolution has upset three long-held tenets of economic development. First, Services have long been thought to be driven only by domestic demand. They could, not, they could not by themselves drive growth, but instead followed growth. In the classical treatment of services, any attempt to expand the volume of service production beyond the limits of domestic demand would quickly lead to a deterioration in the price of services, hence a reduction in profitability and hence the impulse towards expanded production would be choked off. Second, services were considered to have lower productivity than industry. It is hard to improve the labor productivity of a symphony, or as it turns out, of a government. As economies became more service-oriented, their growth would slow down. For rich and advanced countries, while high demand for various services, with high demand for various services, the slowdown in growth was an acceptable consequence of the higher welfare that could be achieved by a switch towards services. But for developing countries, such a, such a trade-off was thought to be inappropriate. Third, 
service jobs in developing countries were thought of as menial and for the most part poorly paid, especially for low-skilled workers. As such, service jobs could not be an effective pathway out of poverty. India's growth pattern upsets all these three old beliefs about the services sector. Growth in India has in fact been led by the services. Labor productivity levels in services are above those in industry, and productivity growth in service sector matches labor productivity growth in manufacturing in China. Services are the largest contributor to GDP growth in India. The service sector accounted for more than 50% of GDP growth in all South Asian countries. Its contribution to GDP, GDP growth is nearly twice that of industry. Further, contribution of services to overall GDP growth has increased over time in India. This is in sharp contrast to China, Korea, and Japan, where industry contributes much more than services to GDP growth. When in India, the service sector is also characterized by much higher labor productivity than the industrial sector. Indeed, productivity growth in India's service sector matches productivity growth in China's manufacturing sector. This is in sharp contrast to East Asian countries where the industrial sector has substantially higher productivity levels. Now, given that the process of development is one of transferring resources, largely labor, from low productivity areas to high productivity areas, it makes sense to interpret rapid growth in India as one of moving labor from low productivity agriculture to high productivity services. India has experienced an exponential increase in service exports at a rate which exceeds even the rapid growth of China in manufacturing exports. This suggests that service exports are a key component of service-led growth. The fastest growing segment of export has been in the information technology and IT-enabled services. India has exhibited a clear comparative advantage in services, while China has shown a comparative advantage in goods. It is easier for service firms to cluster and grow faster than for manufacturing firms. Service firms take up less space, do not cause traffic jams like what happened when shipping their goods, and pollute less. This is not only true for developed countries with notable tradable service hubs in New York, London, Silicon Valley, but also in developing countries like in Hyderabad. Services also display potential for productivity gains from learning, networking, and knowledge spillovers. Can service growth reduce poverty then? Can it does it create jobs? Does it contribute to gender parities? Our results show that trend growth in the service sector among Indian states is associated with a decrease in the trend of the headcount poverty rate of almost 1.5 points during the sample period we examined. In fact, the service sector is the only sector showing a statistically significant association with poverty reduction. Similar results are found when differentiating into rural and urban poverty. 
service sector growth is strongly associated with the reduction of both urban and rural poverty rates. Service jobs are good jobs. Wage growth has been higher in the service sector than in manufacturing and agriculture in recent years in India. While manufacturing wages fell in the early 2000s, both rural and urban areas, despite rapid economic growth, service sector wages in utilities, trade, transport, and even rural finance improved. In fact, in many sectors, rural wages may have increased faster than in urban areas, possibly reflecting the rising rural-urban migration over time that is taking place in India. It is this internal rural-urban migration and links between rural and urban labor markets that allows the modern services in India to contribute to poverty reduction, even though modern services are concentrated in urban large cities. In both India and Pakistan, women are going into service sector jobs at a much faster rate than into manufacturing or agriculture. Between 1985 and 2002, female employment in services in Pakistan grew by 7% per year, compared to 6% female employment growth in industry. Currently, South Asia suffers from one of the lowest female labor force participation rates in the world. Only around one-third of all women of working age in India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka are actually working or looking for work. Internationally, countries with high employment in services tend to have the highest participation of women in the labor markets. The development of service industries, therefore, brings in new workers into the labor force, making the contribution to aggregate growth even larger. The employment of women has a very special role in development and poverty reduction. Incomes of households where women have jobs are significantly higher. Higher household incomes and enhanced economic status for women, in turn, reduce the number of children per household, drive higher levels of education and health care for those children, and increase household savings and the ability to accumulate assets that generate additional income. I have been often been asked, is service-led growth sustainable or is it just a flash in the pan? Thanks to the ICT revolution, there is now a much wider array of new products that can be produced and exported at low cost. This array of products increasingly includes modern impersonal services, and South Asia has taken off these, has taken advantage of these possibilities, with India establishing a clear comparative advantage in service exports. India's experience may be particular. Luck and history may have played a role in the development of services. India's English language heritage, its strong tradition of higher education, its computer-savvy diaspora, and its embrace of modern tele telecommunication infrastructure provided a basis for service exports. Perhaps as important, its notorious problems with infrastructure, like power and transport, its complex logistics and heavy licensing regimes militated against development of industry. It was natural for comparative advantage to shift towards services. 
but it also points out to a rapid change in the world that has important implications for all developing countries, the service revolution and the globalization of services. Other countries may or may not have a comparative advantage in some service sectors. What is certain is that the old idea of services as being non-tradable, non-scalable, is no longer holds for a host of modern services. Instead, it seems that under the right circumstances, the service sector can demonstrate significant labor and total factor productivity growth. The globalization of service will continue for, for two reasons. First, services account for more than 70% of global GDP, as was stated earlier, more than double the size of manufacturing sector. So there is tremendous scope for service globalization. Second, the cost differential in the production of services across the world is enormous. In the past, the only option to narrowing such cost differential was through migration. But migration has been heavily regulated. Now that service providers can sell services without crossing national borders by making use of the internet, the scope for exploiting cost differential is much higher. What is more, it is very hard for governments to regulate modern impersonal services, so prospects for rapid expansion in service exports are good. But is there hope for bottom billion? India's experience offers hope that globalization of service can indeed be a force for development in many more countries. The marginalization of Africa during a period when China and other East Asian countries grew rapidly led some to wonder if latecomers to development were not doomed to failure. The process of globalization in the 20th century led to a divergence of incomes between those who industrialized and broke into global markets, and a bottom billion of people in some 60 countries where incomes stagnated for 20 years. It seemed as if the bottom billion would have to wait their turn for development until the giant industrializers like China became rich and uncompetitive in labor-intensive manufacturing. The promise of service revolution is that countries do not need to wait to get started with rapid development. There is a new boat that development latecomers can take. The globalization of service provides alternative opportunities for developing countries to find niche beyond manufacturing where they can specialize, scale up, and achieve explosive growth, just like industrializers. The core of our book and the core of our argument is that as the number of services produced and traded traded across the world expand with globalization. The possibilities for all countries, developed and developing, to benefit from it is enormous. It depends on also on their comparative advantage. That comparative advantage can just as easily be in services as in manufacturing or indeed agriculture. We do not argue for services and against manufacturing or agriculture but we do argue against the long-held proposition that industrialization is the only route to development. And now we'll hear some comments on the book. Please join me in welcoming Swami Iyer.
Well, Ajaz, I think that was a great presentation. Uh, I won't even try to go over that same kind of ground. Uh, I will therefore come in with some caveats. This must not be understood as saying that I'm trying to necessarily contradict everything that you have to say. But it's a very large and uh, important picture that you've uh, put forward, and I would like to make it somewhat richer by going a little deeper. Uh, I mean, this is an American audience. And for them, one of, the things, one of the issues that you didn't touch in is this huge worry. All our jobs are being exported. I mean, as you said, traditionally, the way that there was any globalization of services was migration. Okay, on migration, it's possible to stop it. The number of H-1B visas has been reduced. Obama has said we are going to increase taxes on guys who try to keep their profits abroad. Uh, so there are these different kinds of ways in which there is an attempt to use protectionism. At the end of it all, it is going to fail because if American companies do not outsource those jobs, those IT jobs, to places which are most competitive, then those American companies will in fact lose to Indian competitors who have the advantages of being in India, and it will lose out to European competitors who are outsourcing guys to India. IBM has about, I think, 3,000 global employees. Uh, officially, some years ago, I think it put about 68,000 in India. There was a secret paper that we want to increase this to 128,000. It was immediately denied and suppressed because, you know, politically it was dynamite. Nobody knows exactly what's happened. There are some whispers that they have already crossed 128,000. IBM knows it has to do that to stay alive. If IBM does not do that, IBM will lose to Infosys, Wipro, Tata Consultancy Services. So the idea that you know the USA is exporting jobs is just a wrong way of looking at it. Rather, the kind of skills required for this thing are so easily available in other places that if Americans don't use that same outsourcing thing, they will lose out to their competitors and there will be nothing at all. Uh, it will remain controversial. I do not think any, any <coughs> American politician will easily adopt the position that I am taking. Okay, let me get back to Ajaz and the revolution in services. Yes, uh, I think you could call it a revolution in services, but it's a limited revolution, and let's not exagger exaggerate what's happened in South Asia, because as he himself says, I mean, service services shares has been growing everywhere. If it has been growing everywhere, it should really not be a great surprise if it's risen in South Asia too. Uh, I do have this little thing which I circulated outside, just to try and put in perspective where India and South Asia are. And yes, South Asia's share of services in GDP, the latest, it's gone up to 53%. In sub-Saharan Africa, it is 55%. In other words, if you have an area of industrial failure, <laughs> the services share can automatically look that much higher. So a high services share is more than just buoyant services. Latin America, the average share is 61%. I mean, they're higher-income developed countries. East Asia and Pacific, basically China, that is the lowest, 41. Because that is an example of when manufacturing is so phenomenally profitable, so phenomenally successful, that depresses the services share. So I said, you know, just looking at the services share, therefore, perhaps is not the best way of looking at it. Again, you know, India has certainly made the news because of its export of computer software and all the business back-end services, uh, legal services, medical services, a series of these things. And yet when I look at the ratio of services to GDP among Southeast Asian countries, frankly, India does not stand out. 
I mean, India's share is 54% services in GDP. Pakistan is 53, Sri Lanka 57, Bangladesh 52, and even Nepal 50. And if you look in terms of in terms of rapid growth, who has grown faster? It turns out to be backward Nepal. Uh, I think largely because out of nothing, the telecom thing has really caught on in a in a big way out there. So I, mean, I said, you know, services are important, but. Uh, they are important everywhere, and if you really want to look at the example of services-led growth, frankly, it's not India. It's all the island economies across the world where you might say 90% 100% of the economies of the Caribbean islands, the Pacific islands, or, uh, or even the African islands like seashells. I mean, all services. So, yes, there is a services revolution, and it's very, very much more than telecom and some of the, of the things uh, that Aja has mentioned. Uh, I'm a little uncomfortable with the phrase services-led growth. Yes, services have been growing fast in India. They have been prominent, no question. But it is a much more broad-based growth than that. And as I said, there are other areas where services have been growing everywhere, even when the economies have not been doing very well. There was a paper by Mauricio Moreira of the IADB. I mean, if you, between the mid-1990s and the latest data, he says in Brazil, 71% of the country's growth in this period can be explained by services. In Mexico, it's 71% also. And in both those countries, the share of services in GDP is 65% Brazil, 63% in Mexico. And yet, it would be very difficult to call those service-led economies. I mean, that's not how you would say. I mean, in many cases, you would say, actually, those guys had a very long and difficult period in manufacturing. And that is perhaps one of the reasons, along with the manufacturing, Brazil had huge success in agriculture. So you could say that these are reasons why their services share went up. So we need to keep all these things in mind. Again, Aja has referred to a huge rise in employment growth in some of these high-tech services in India. He is right. Those high-tech services have shown tremendous growth, but it's from a very tiny base. I mean, our entire software industry, the legal industry, uh, I think two years ago, they said we've reached one million people. India's workforce is 450 million. So when you go from zero to one, to one million, I mean, it's a lot. And there are some ancillary services which come in also. I, there was one paper by Rajiv Kumar on the growth of employment, and that actually shook me. Because it shows that the growth of employment in services in India has steadily been decelerating for more than 20 years from 4.05% per year in the 1983-88. In, the, in 2000-2005, it's steadily come down to only 1.97% per year. This does not mean that Ajaz is wrong. This modern IT sector is growing, whereas the government sector, which <laughs> provides most of the services, is completely stagnant and, and, and not rising very much. But it's worth putting in perspective that still the bulk of services tends to, the government is by, by far, the largest provider of services. We just need to keep that in mind. Um, so India's GDP growth accelerated in the last 10 years, no doubt about it. Uh, I think we've averaged about 8%, and a few years we exceeded 9%. But this is not just services-led, it's broad-based. Even agricultural growth sort of doubled from 2% in the earlier decade to about 4%, and that helped manufacturing growth was averaging about 8% a year against 9% for services. So, you know, 
It's not just services, and it couldn't have been done just by services. Ajaz is absolutely right in saying that people who said that services cannot be a leading sector are wrong. But it is also true, I think, that apart from a few island economies depending on tourism, it can't just be services either. You do need broad-based growth. Um, again, when you look at, when you begin to break up the services, saying what is it that's been growing? As you said, of course, the government service is not growing at all. And I regret to say that, uh, although Ajaz may say productivity in service can be very high, <laughs> productivity in those government areas, social services, community services, I regret to say productivity growth in some of them is negative, although it's hugely positive in other areas. But when we talk about the service revolution, I find when you look at the data, it is above all a telecom revolution. Yes, there are software jobs. Yes, there are these other high-tech jobs. But above all, it's a telecom revolution. And uh, in the last decade, telecom revolution, the telecom growth was 23% per year. I mean, you've got a situation in India where we are adding up to 20 million new cell phone connections per month, not per year. Every month, another 20 million cell phone connections. It's a phenomenal rate of growth. I mean, the total number of connections is now more than 500 million. Uh, uh, and just growing very, very fast. So that has been the big revolution. And while it, of course, helps the high-tech sector, it also helps everybody. You have a situation where people below the poverty line are buying cell phones. Because it helps in personal communications and in uh, their actual economic activities. The, the growth of the business services is 16.3%, which is extremely good, but still well below the telecom part of it. Uh, trade remains the biggest service sector in total terms, growth of 7.8% per year, almost as fast as overall GDP growth. I mean, that's a huge sector growing well. And again, there have been very substantial improvements in productivity out there, thanks to the use of IT, thanks to modern transportation systems. And I think the very fast growth of trade, which is the biggest service sector, is a pointer that a country has to look for roads. Uh, so, you know, services growth is not just about the internet. You have to have roads. That remains an extremely important and strong driver of growth. And I emphasize this certainly for other developing countries, especially Africa. Uh, you must have transport. Uh, you must have competition. You know, in India, the huge amount of competition has driven down the internal price of cell phone calls to half a cent a minute. I mean, at which ridiculously low price, their profit margins are still over 20%. I mean, how they do it is absolutely incredible. But clearly, you've proved it's possible. In Africa, telephone calls are still very expensive. I mean, there are a series of monopoly positions. I mean, that needs to be broken up. We do need competition. So I think the, another lesson from India is the importance of competition. It's just not just enough to have the telecom or the IT. You must have the competition. Uh, Ajaz perhaps didn't emphasize it enough. But once you get this very really cheap telecom available, it becomes a huge vehicle for the promotion of financial services. I mean, Kenya has led this in the case of you know, cell phone can be used for a transfer of remittances and for opening an account and for spending money. 
Uh, it's being done bit by bit in a large number of countries. But this has huge scope. But that, in turn, will work only when competition drives down prices. Uh, and this is one of the avenues by which it benefits not just exporters, not just the very, very large companies. It benefits absolutely uh, the bottom layer and in the rural areas. It's extremely important. So I'd say, you know, on the question of services-led growth, frankly, services have been really revolutionary for exports much more than for GDP. Uh, service exports in India have up from about 3% of GDP to 10% of GDP in a decade, and that is, is phenomenal. Uh, they are catching up with merchandise exports. Right now, I would say the total level is almost two-thirds uh, of the level of merchandise exports. Uh, I have to add there is a lot of statistical debate on how good these data are. I mean, when an Indian company says, I am exporting uh, software services to the USA, it includes the fact that 40% of the job may be Indians coming to work on site in the USA. So we include it in our exports, but America does not include, include it in its imports. So, so you know, you, you find huge differences between what the American data show and the Indian data show. But one way or the other, it is certainly revolutionary. The other thing that's grown phenomenally is the remittance economy. Now, some people will call this labor exports or services exports. Others will say, well, you know, this is not really an export at all. All I can say is, at the end of it all, it's a phenomenal amount of money. India last year got $53 billion of remittances. $53 billion. I mean, it's much more than the GDP of a very large number of countries, almost 5% of GDP. And frankly, when you say, how is it that India can manage to run a merchandise deficit of 10% of GDP? I mean, it's something which is mind-boggling, and the answer is remittance and service exports. Uh, that's how you do it. Uh, so India, unlike China, which runs this huge merchandise surplus, uh, very few people remark India has a merchandise trade deficit, which should normally lead to complete economic collapse. And we've avoided that because of remittances and service exports. Um, there's been talk in India about the digital divide, saying there is a small minority of people who have access, they have globalized. Uh, but what about everybody else, you know? So there's thin little 1%. You see, India has economies of scale. As Ajaz said, you need skills. You need uh, people who are savvy in these things. But our educational system is lousy, our higher educational system is lousy. But if you have a population of 1 billion, then even if only 1% are competent, that is 10 million people. And those 10 million can occupy a large number of jobs and make the country as a whole and experts look, exports look extremely impressive. So on the one hand, it represents failure. On the other hand, it represents the advantage of economies of scale. Here, I'm afraid a large number of smaller developing countries are going to find it difficult to compete. Uh, I suppose the biggest uh, advantage might still lie with large uh, population countries like, what, Egypt, Nigeria, Brazil, uh, Mexico, these are the countries that might get into it. Uh, a question has often been asked, you know, what is it special about India? After all, uh, it is not as though higher education or uh, engineers are not produced everywhere else. Uh, it is not, I mean, India is pretty backward in some of these things compared with many other middle-income countries. Why is it that India has grown and become this big superstar uh, in exporting these IT services and IT-related services. 
I have cogitated on this and come to the conclusion the credit goes to two things which were lost, which were long called the greatest evils that have ever befallen India. The first was British colonial rule. You say, oh my God, those guys came and they raped and they plundered and they took in this, that, or other. Absolutely. But they left behind something called the English language. Now, I mean, this was not the meaningful thing that they wanted. But the, what the English language did on the one hand was provide a common language to the elites in different parts of India, creating a unity within India which had never existed in history. Secondly, as it turned out, the language of the internet and the, glo the language of globalization has turned out to be English. Uh, I remember I met somebody in Indonesia who said, terrible, we were colonized by the Dutch. <laughs> uh, wrong colonizer. Uh, so the advantage on this particular thing for other developing countries certainly lies in other people who had a good uh, access to the English language, which would be the earlier British colonies. I think the French colonies would find it much more difficult. The Spanish-Portuguese colonies would find it much more difficult. But this was one big advantage India had. The other enormous advantage India had was something called the brain drain. I mean, we had these top quality educational institutions in India, which were set up, elite institutions. And 70 to 80% of those guys all went abroad. And there used to be a lot of weeping and wailing of, my God, you know, why on earth are we producing engineers and doctors for the USA and for the UK? And for the, I mean, they don't stay here. Let's stop them from going. All this used to happen. What India proved is that once you create conditions at home which are sufficiently competitive and attractive, the guys who have gone out will come back. They will come back with infinitely more skills than they ever had when they left. You get brain circulation, and the brain circulation is value addition. There is a value addition when you train them in India and go abroad. There is an even greater value addition when they come back. So to move from brain drain to brain circulation has been, in some sense, India's huge success. Uh, other countries can replicate those conditions. It can come about. Uh, finally, let me say, what is the future agenda? There's a thin elite in India that globalized. It had the connectivity and it had the skills. Those are the two key things to participate in globalization. If you don't have connectivity, you can't. If you don't have skills, it's very difficult. But a vast amount of rural India has been bypassed by this. It can participate in it if it gets the connectivity and the skills. And I said the problem in a large number of developing countries is there is no connectivity between one village and the next village because there are no roads. I mean, Africa is the saddest thing. We have to go from one Africa to another African country. You first fly to Paris and then fly back because, because there, are, there, there are no direct flights. Uh, so you need connectivity. You need especially roads. In the, in the first and foremost, without roads, you aren't going to get that connectivity. You need electricity. I mean, you electricity, again, is a grid. It provides connectivity of different kinds. And without electricity, ultimately, you cannot have either cell phones or the internet. So if you want that larger thing, electricity is basic. Uh, of course, a large number of parts of rural India and in Africa, people get car batteries. And they plug in their cell phones into the car batteries to try and charge them. But you know, as the use of that goes, if there's not enough electricity for the car batteries in the first place, you won't be able to use this. So you must get electricity as part of connectivity. Then you need skills of every kind. In India, you know, the, the lethargic government apparatus, you know, it expanded the number of engineers per year from 45,000 to 50,000. 
But meanwhile, I would say quasi-legally or sometimes outright illegally, private colleges of all kinds mushroomed, and they are producing 500,000 engineers. Now, these are often not proper degree engineers. Some call them diploma engineers. Uh, some people say 50% of them are useless, 25% are usable, and 25% are world-class. Okay. So there's a huge wastage in the system. And yet, again, scale matters. How many countries can produce 500,000 engineers, even if half of them are lousy? So scale has come to us by benefit. But all I'm saying, the importance of skill building is enormous. And as an economy grows, you will find all skill shortages have arisen across the board. Today, there's a shortage in India of a skill called bricklaying. And I've talked to builders who say, we are, instead of having a normal brick of nine inches by four, we are making bricks of nine inches by nine inches. So that fewer bricks have to be laid for the same building. And this way, I'll overcome the shortage of skills in bricklaying. So I mean, one of the successes of India has been company after company has set up training programs. So I mean, the huge scale development is required. The government system, I regret to say, is a massive failure. This is being partly made good by private training. This, I suspect, is something which will also have to be done in several African countries. Uh, I think I'll stop out there. Thank you very much. Here's the book. We will have copies for sale afterwards. I thought before we get to questions, I'd just give Dr. Ghani a chance to briefly, in a minute or two or three, respond to a couple of points uh, Swami made. One is, uh, you used the phrase, industrial failure. And I wonder, in the book, do you address the fact that in India, the government seems to have actively discouraged industrialization, the sense the rules governing how big a firm can be, or at least if a firm gets too large, all sorts of government regulations kick in. So in India, you've got this phenomenon of a lot of small manufacturers staying below that employee limit, which, of course, limits their competitive, uh, competitiveness. And the fact that uh, in some very visible ways, the Chinese economic model of development does seem to be superior in, in one, delivering uh, stronger growth rates over a longer period, but also seeming to spread that prosperity out uh, more and I wondered uh, if you could just address maybe some of the critics of uh, service-led growth. And then, uh, since we we are in the United States, an American audience, how do you briefly respond to people who say, "Well, India's gain is going to be our loss"? Alan Blinder saying, I think wrongly, 40 million American jobs at risk. Uh, they're going to outsource the director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies over to India uh, shortly, uh, according to Alan Blinder. But I just wondered if you'd briefly respond to those. Points. Thank you very much, uh, Daniel. Um, uh, I, I thought, I mean, let me start by responding to Daniel's question about, uh, you know, jobs being lost. Uh, I visited the Cato uh, website and went through some of his articles. He has addressed them beautifully for manufacturing goods. The same reasons apply to services. So in a way, I didn't address that because I thought you have addressed them so beautifully. And I'm going to, on the other hand, focus the similarities between services and manufacturing. manufacturing. And if we can show they are similar, then policy and logic would be the same. Um, Swami also talked about it, I mean, the concern about jo jobs is a concern everywhere. I mean, we, we know it's, it's, it's a big concern in India. It's a big concern in uh, 
uh, USA, it's, it's a concern globally. I mean, let me just give you uh, uh, something on which I'm working right now, which is reshaping tomorrow. Here's a fact. Uh, for the next 20 years, 20 million new workers will join the labor force in India every year. That is almost the size, the entire population of Canada, which will be joining the labor force every year continuously for the next 20 years. So that that, that really makes one very humble and modest, and I, I, I completely agree with the uh, uh, balance that Swami tried to bring into this. Uh, we should not try and oversell service revolution. And we cannot believe in just one-trick pony. So I, I'm not going to focus on this just to say that all those comments were absolutely uh, 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 valid and correct, and we, we should be a bit careful about not overselling um, the, impo uh, the importance of service revolution. Um, the thing that I want to highlight, one thing that we missed out is, I mean, the point you had made was the real, the real thing that stands out about service revolution is service exports. It leads to explosive growth. And then you gave the example of island economies, you know, which have an even bigger... Uh, 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 tourism sector or services sector. So how do we reconcile this logic of uh, Nepal and many African countries having bigger services sector? Uh, I mean, in the book, what we try to do is to distinguish between modern services and traditional services. And we show that it is the modern services which behave like goods, just like China manufactures manufactured goods, Modern services, which can be digitized and sent to the Internet, can take advantage of scale economies, specialization, agglomeration, leading to massive explosive growth. So those who are competitive can really grow as fast. But when it comes to traditional services, those are face-to-face -face transactions. For example, tourism. You know, we have to take a tourist on a bus. You know, they have to be met and welcomed you really can't benefit from scale economies with that kind of face-to-face -face transaction. So the traditional services sector will never experience a massive explosive growth. It's the modern services. I should have uh, really uh, clarified about that. I think your point about, you know, can India be a one-trick pony? No, it can't be. I think, you know, the critiques of... Uh, those who have highlighted the importance of the industrial sector and what is holding back the industrial sector, is very relevant. I mean, I gave you the, f the fact that going forward, 20 million new workers will join. Uh, Swami talked about the digital divide, the importance. The so what we need is really, I mean, is, 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 is a more ho holistic, uh, a broad-based approach. Um, I want to bring out some limitations, I mean, some of the implications of remittances, you know. I mean, Swami talked about the massive importance of $50 billion remittances being paid. Let's, let's move forward 10 years from now. What happens? You have an aging population in Japan and USA. The aging population needs some kind of services, probably. Uh, and you have a very young population in India and some African countries. There are two ways to resolve the demand for service and the inability to supply that service. Either a lot of migration of Indians and Africans into 
countries with aging populations. So really we will see a continued increase in migration. Now, if the governments put restrictive policies, and actually history tells us that migration and remittances can never go beyond 3%, so it cannot be an explosive source of growth. If that's the case, and migration becomes even more restrictive, then the only way of providing th these services is through the Internet, which will be much of the things that you do could be, could be managed through the uh, global trade in services. So no matter which way we look at it, I think, you know, either it will fall as a traditional service or as a modern service, depending on how one treats the uh, uh, traditional service, you know. I mean, the thing to highlight is much more not to oversell importance of traditional service, uh, of important service, but really to highlight that the role of services is being overlooked in, in uh, uh, policy making, in academics, in our research, and, and, and if we can just start the debate on that, that's good enough for us. I think we've uh, started the debate here with great uh, gusto. So now we'll, we'll turn to your questions, and please raise your hand, and I'll call on you, and then wait for the microphone to come down, and then... Uh, just give us your name and your affiliation, and please, uh, since we can give everybody a chance, get right to the question and, and keep the pre-orations to a minimum. Yes, how about right in front here? Thank you very much. Raghubir Goyer, India Globe in Asia today. My question is that uh, if anyone can talk about a little bit, of course, Swamiji, uh, upcoming visit of President Obama in uh, November in India, what results this will bring as far as investments and uh, companies doing business, uh, vice versa, in the U.S. and uh, as far as this uh, recent nuclear agreement uh, is concerned. And finally, India has money and brain. So then what's wrong with India? And how India is going to compete with China? Dr. Ghani, you want to take the first cut at that? Go ahead. Well, you know, I, I think I'd have to say that this is not really related with what we are discussing right here. Uh, frankly, Obama's, you know, there will be some various polite, polite things said on both sides. On the nuclear side, there are some differences. They will be papered over. The difficult issue in some sense, you might say, is what happens if he's asked hard question about this thing called American jobs are being exported to India, which would then become relevant to our subjects. So I'll just focus on this. I personally say that this is a trick of words. The notion that there is something called an American job in the first instance and that this is being exported. I mean, for most of history, India and China accounted for 50 to 60 to 70 percent of world GDP. Why? Because we were phenomenally ahead of everybody else in textiles, which were made by hand. When the Industrial Revolution came, the handloom industries of India and China collapsed, and it all came up in Europe. I know of no history book which talks about the export of textile jobs from China and India to Europe or to the USA. I mean, the phrase was never used because it didn't make sense. And just as that didn't make sense to say American service jobs are being exported to India, to me makes no sense. Uh, services are not a property right of a country. Services are a means whereby satisfaction is delivered to customers. Whoever can deliver that satisfaction best uh, in terms of quality, price, and the other things 
that is that is the person who is going to produce it so american jobs are not being exported all that you are discovering is that there was a time when the technological lead given by the industrial revolution to the west was put you so far ahead that it appeared that all kinds of skills available in the west were unique now you're discovering they're not, not so unique they can be universalized uh, in america i find people complaining that you do you know the lower and guys are all losing out and the answer is if you look at the global level if the third world countries are being raised then in effect if you are really worried about you know is there greater equality the answer is yes equality is improving globally uh, people who are earning much less than the american working class they are being raised this is a positive good globally so as far as the moral imperatives are concerned i am very very clear both in practical and moral terms what is happening is the third world which had got left behind by the industrial revolution is catching up it will have consequences for the west just as the industrial revolution had consequences for the east just just want to add one data point since my calling here at cato is to defend uh, a free market here at home I think the services revolution in India is complementary, very complementary to what we do here in the United States. And if you look at uh, the tradable category called business and professional services, we run a tens of billions of dollar surplus here in the United States. We're out there competing with India and other countries uh, very, very effectively in services. So the more tradable these higher end services are, the, the better off uh, we are. There's no zero sum game going on here. Uh, yes, in the back row there. I'm Helen Rafael, Resources for the Future. But my experience has been for many years working in China, and I have not worked in India. Uh, in China, it was very apparent, it still is, that people from the countryside keep coming into the cities that are expanding and taking jobs that these less educated uh, people who've grown up in poverty can take in the industrial sector. I would like you I would like to request that Mr. Ghani explain how the de development of IT practitioners who are highly skilled and highly educated can in fact pass on their wealth their middle class status to people who in the countryside the vast majority of Indians who don't have the education and the skills necessary to simply come to the cities and adopt their jobs um, that 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 is a a, a very good question and uh, it's for the reason that although service can led growth can be as explosive as a manufactured led growth with one drawback that services are more skill intensive compared to the manufacturing jobs that it may not create as many jobs as so so uh, as a result you see the migration rate in india from the countryside to the urban area is lower than the migration rates in 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 uh, china um this only goes to show that you know uh, india and other countries also need to remove restrictive policies that limit the industrial sector so uh, you know i mean india needs to do what china is doing and china needs to do what india is doing now this is important because if we if we if we start looking at the problem of global imbalances 
you know, where one country is consuming and another is exporting and saving, you know. I mean, that, that cannot be sustained for too long. So countries that have relied just on export-led growth now need to liberalize consumption and other sectors. And service revolution and liberalization of services could play a very important role in these countries to increase the uh, consumption pattern. However, I think you know, every urban job that's created in the IT sector, NASCOM says there are four jobs that are created by that because it, it leads to in people looking for more cooks, drivers, gardeners, etc. Uh, I think I could give many, many more dramatic examples than he has really given. Uh, let me give you one from the fishing industry in Kerala. Earlier, there were no cell phones. The fishermen would go typically at night fishing. Early morning, they would land their catch at many hundreds of points along the beaches where the various traders would come. India is a hot country. The auction would be over by 9 in the morning. They would take the fish out. Problem, in some places, there are more fishermen than there are traders. You don't know what to do with the fish, some of which had to be thrown away and wasted. In other places, there are more traders than there are fishermen. And there is a shortage. You had the suboptimal situation. Then along came the cell phones. Every fisherman had a cell phone. Every trader had a cell phone. When they went out for fishing, the fish were already sold before the guys returned. Every fisherman knew that of the 100 landing points, which is the point he should land to to get to the appropriate guys. Plus, because there was so the trader got a better deal, the fisherman got a higher price, and because no fish were thrown away anymore and wasted, the consumer price came down. Win-win-win <laughs> situation. A similar kind of situation has been reported in the case of casual labor. How does casual labor find jobs in India? You have a situation where every village there is a meeting point, and at 9 o'clock in the morning, guys land up saying, let me land up to see whether anybody wants labor today. Again, you had places where there were laborers and no farmers in need. In other places, there would be farmers, and there wouldn't be enough laborers. Just using the cell phone, you could match the demand for and the supply of labor. Again, win-win situation. The third example I'll give you is for the, you know, we had nationalized banking back in the 1970s saying we must get lending and uh, rural services. Despite losing enormous sums of money, very few rural people actually had access to banking services. Now the cell phone revolution has made that possible. Everybody has a cell phone. On the cell phone, you can open accounts, you can withdraw money, you can get remittances. So I just give you these three examples that it is not just a question of the big software boys sitting out there in Bangalore, that there are consequences for the service revolution and for this telecom revolution, which absolutely have huge implications for the countryside. Sorry? Well, yes, the demand for cell phones is so phenomenal that all the big cell phone producers have set up production facilities in India and found it so economic that, of course, they are now exporting to other places as well. But, uh, right back there. Thank you for a wonderful uh, balancing uh, discussion here, balanced talk between both the speakers. Um, however, the question comes back again to uh, partly on where you are touching on is the job creation by export-led services, essentially, uh, which becomes a big challenge for India kind of growth story, where 
telecom revolution, the examples you're giving probably is creating some uh, rural urban balances and haves and have-nots, but still the export-led services are occupied by top 2 to 5% of the educated lot, which is very, very difficult to percolate down to those who are in the countryside. That, that's a challenge with, I think, India will have to work on, and if, uh, if anything, any thoughts would be helpful. The same lean, I mean, in the same direction, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about the sustainability of this, this export-led service growth because at the high skill level, I think the, it, it would become very, very easy or become faster to converge the wages between uh, developed and developing countries. And I think we have started seeing the convergence of the wages of, of high skill labor. So as these things converge at some level, where would India's competitive advantage take? And would it be as much as an American worker working in U.S. and producing the same service? So that would, I think, is coming fast. Maybe in 10 years, there will be a lot of services which would be equally expensive producing in those countries compared to these countries. Then what would we get? I mean, and, and India would have to think about and work in the direction of making uh, you know, local or traditional services probably more for a growth-driven than export-driven. That's, uh, that's my sense. Thank you. Uh, yes, the wages have risen extremely fast among the high-end services. There is still an advantage, but I mean, from my point of view, this is a very positive development. India started off at the lowest, uh, at, at the bottom end of the international software and, uh, and other services. So our software guys at one point of time were called cyber coolies. I mean, these were the guys, you know, really doing the absolute simplest, simplest kinds of jobs. As they have gone up the ladder, the wages have gone up. So it, uh, but this has not come in the way. It has not come in the way because as your skills improve, you are moving into higher and higher brackets of services. So you have remained competitive. The fascinating question is, will a time come when your wages have risen to the point where the bottom end, you find that even with some rural education, you have become uncompetitive? And my answer is, yes, it may well happen. And I'm sure part of that will go to Bangladesh, part of that will go to Africa, and that's a very good thing. That's exactly what should happen. I mean, as a country gets richer, it should be moving into newer kinds of services. It should be vacating some of the older areas. I do hope that happens. Yes, right there. I thank you very much for the presentation. I'm Patrick Shem from the immigration law firm Fragman, Dowry, Bernstein, and Lowy. Quick question for anyone on the panel. U.S. immigration policies targeting, whether they admit it or not, Indian IT firms, administrative and legislative. Uh, violation of GATS, yes or no? Look, there are political reasons why you are tar targeting the Indian IT guys. The f there is a feeling out here that there is a period of high unemployment. What's happening is that there are some jobs which could be done by American guys, but the Indian guy who comes over can do it cheaper. And therefore, the argument is that the Indian who is coming over is keeping an American out of job because it should be here. And so there are a series of issues. I mean, there's a, the tax, the visa restrictions, they're all there. You know, this game of trying to restrict the entry of guys has been tried for the last 10 years the net result for India has been hugely positive. I am convinced that all these visa restrictions on Indians coming here has driven more business to India. I am very, very... So it, it is not the case that, you know, the idea that the fixed number of jobs and export or not. No. What's happened is that, you know, when we started, 
uh, there was a thing called body shopping. I mean, Indians were literally taken by air and brought here, and they did all the work to the USA and went back. So the amount of offshore work done in India was zero, and 100% was done here. Then you got a mix, mixture of the offshoring and the on-site. Uh, and as late as 2000, two-thirds of all the Indian software stuff was on-site in America, only one-third is in India. Now it's reversed. Today, two-thirds is in India, and one-third is here. As you get more and more visa restrictions, 80% will go to India. <laughs> Only 20% will. Be. So from my point of view, you know, protectionism ultimately fails, even for the narrow ends which its uh, creators imagine for itself. It has happened in the case of goods, and Dan Griswold has written about that. It's happening in services, too. Yani, did you want to? Yeah, I, I don't know the GATT, WTO legality of that. I, I do know it's bad policy for many of the reasons uh, Swami mentioned, really it's a discouragement on investment in the United States. It's discouraging those Indian companies like Wipro and Infosys from setting up operations here, which, yes, they bring in their own people, which I think is fine, but that creates jobs for Americans in, in support of that, and they'll just locate somewhere else, Canada, Western Europe, or back, uh, back in India. So whether it's GATT legal or not, I'm confident to say it's very bad policy uh, disguised in that bill. I think it is GATT legal as of, as of now. Right uh, back there in the corner. Again, we're, we're getting towards the end, so a premium on being brief and right uh, to your question. Um, Pat Spann, uh, myself. Um, I had a question uh, listening to the discussion today. Is there any other developed countries other than the U.S. that export services? <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, you know, the export, especially of financial services, is enormous for all the rich countries. And as Dan said, many of them have a very large trade surplus in, 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 the, in the export of services. So on the financial services, the West is enormously far ahead. It's in just a, even in software services, huge amount of software are being exported from by the USA and other countries abroad. I mean, most of the global trade in services are dominated by the developed economy, OECD countries, uh, US, Europe. But increasingly, you know, uh, the growth of trade in services from India and other countries is catching up. But in terms of absolute number, they don't match. Yeah, the, the U.S. is one of the world's, I think it is the world's leading uh, service exporter. We had a surplus of over $100 billion uh, last year, a big chunk of it in that business, that higher-end business and professional services, but also tourism and royalties and fees and those sorts of things all, all come under that. So think about that when you hear all the hand-wringing about uh, uh, more tradability and services. It's an unmitigated blessing uh, for the United States. We, I think we have time for one more question. We really need to be... Uh, very concise, right in the back there. Thank you. I'm Marie Sherrod. I'm an MPA student at Strayer University, and I had a comment. I can appreciate your views, Mr. Griswold. Um, I don't necessarily agree with them, though. That's why I'm here. Um, my comment would be um, we very, very briefly touched on uh, the cost factors involved, and I'm all for, God knows, as an MPA student, competitive advantage. But recently, AboveTheLaw.com, and I'm sure you've heard of that 
um, AboveTheLaw.com, that website, announced that 100 jobs in one law firm alone were being outsourced to India, and they included hysterically enough HR as well as all their IT, some of their marketing. That's a lot of mortgages in the United States potentially going in foreclosure. Your comment? Oh, I thought it addressed to you. Why do you answer? <laughs> well, first, uh, even when the economy is humming, when we had unemploy- an unemployment rate of 4%, there were 300,000 Americans lining up every week for unemployment insurance. So the fact that 100 jobs disappear in this sector or that sector is really nothing new. I mean, we, we, we had an economic model at one time where everybody was guaranteed a job, basically the job their father and grandfather had. It was called feudalism. Uh, we live in a dynamic market economy where jobs are changing all the time. Uh, maybe there's a market signal there that we maybe have too many people in law school uh, who should think about other, other professions. Just, just a thought. Uh, and so the fact that uh, 100 jobs uh, for lawyers are being done in India at probably tremendous savings for society in general uh, is maybe not necessarily a bad thing, and people should think about uh, uh, shifting their career uh, in, in other, other areas. So uh, we'll need to leave it there. I will just uh, say a couple of concluding remarks. The book uh, will be for sale, and Dr. Ghani will be available uh, to talk about his book and, and to sign copies. I please invite you all to join us for our complimentary lunch upstairs. Thank you very much for coming.